These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as the playlist. When the news broke this week that Joe Biden had selected Kamala Harris as his running mate, I expected to feel a brief few moments of disappointment before backing his decision 100%. I thought I'd be sad that my preferred candidate, Elizabeth Ann Warren, who I still believe should be the nominee for president, or Harris Warren if you prefer, would not be on the ticket at all. I campaigned hard for Warren. Of all the candidates, I most align with her progressive ideals, and I connect with her story. We're both mothers and university professors who had the strength to leave a bad relationship in our 20s, and I appreciate how in every decision she makes, she leads with empathy. I made calls for her, and although I'm an introvert with an anxiety disorder, even canvassed for her, going door-to-door, telling everyone who would listen why she would make not just the best president in 2020, but would be far and away the best president this country has ever had. But when I opened Twitter to the wall of tweets announcing Harris would be the VP, my first reaction was one of sheer joy. Canvassing for Warren wasn't my first foray into the political arena. As mentioned on other broadcasts, I was raised in a socially conservative Catholic home. Truthfully, I was raised in a white supremacist one. My father was a U.S. history teacher and avid news watcher. Thankfully, this was pre the 24-hour Fox News cycle, or my house would have been even louder. He had the New York Post delivered to our home, and he was very Archie Bunker-esque in complaining that affirmative action was unfair to white people, that his inability to keep and land a job was because of supposedly racist policies like these, and he distrusted Republicans preferring libertarians. But in reality, Republicans just weren't white supremacist enough. He railed against Black History Month because why don't whites have their own month? Duh, it's every freaking month. Welfare, even though we were on it in my early elementary school years, and so-called big government. He listened to conservative radio show host Jim Quinn every morning. And one of his favorite sayings was, the cure is often worse than the disease which he used to decry government programs. He detested women politicians, called Anita Hill vile names when she bravely spoke out about the sexual harassment she suffered while working for current Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I was in middle school at the time, and this memory is seared into my brain to this day. I've even discussed it in therapy. He also horribly insulted Janet Reno when Bill Clinton named her the first woman attorney general. He was so right-wing that he made me choose a defense of Richard Nixon's role in Watergate as my high school senior thesis topic, insisted on writing much of it himself, and then was very angry with my teacher when the paper only earned a B+, then accusing my teacher of bias against conservative students. My father claimed to be a state's rights strict constitutionalist, which, again, really just a front for white supremacy. As a very young girl, I thought my father walked on water. I hung on every word he said. I thought every word that came out of his mouth was gospel truth. Of course he was smarter than all the dads, and anybody who disagreed with him just couldn't understand how brilliant he really was. In junior high, I started working on my first political campaigns, supporting local Republican politicians in Pittsburgh. I loved spending time with like-minded people, and whether I was making calls or stuffing envelopes, I knew I was doing my part to make our city stronger and safer. I was the girl with daddy issues who wore I support desert storm pins to school on my blazer, 
and who believed that a woman had no right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. Once she made the choice to have sex, the consequences were her fault and her responsibility. In high school, my father was overjoyed that I had writing talent and so excited when I became the editorials editor of the high school newspaper, The Civitan, my sophomore year. Now, I had some actual power. I could be the conservative voice, the Ann Coulter or Tommy Lahren, if you will, of my high school, which was mostly non-white and about 75% Democratic. Wanting nothing more than to please my father, I did. And, as disgusting as it was, there was a part of me who felt that I was a rebel, dishing out truths that others were afraid to say or hear. I wrote articles demonizing those in poverty and encouraging them, just work harder. I wrote articles supporting metal detectors in our high school, and I wrote anti-environment, anti-women's rights, and anti-tax articles too. My father was so pleased that he encouraged me to apply to Columbia University and Northwestern for journalism, and even purchased me a fancy black portfolio, much nicer than we could afford, for my newspaper clips. However, by 1992, at the end of my sophomore year, I started changing. I had friends who lived far below the poverty line. My boyfriend's mother was a single mom of five, and they were on welfare, and they were neither horrible nor lazy. I had known girls who were pregnant, who had kept their babies, and girls who had ended their pregnancies, and knew they all made the best decisions they could and deserved support, not blame. And I had friends from many races in my diverse high school and dated boys from other races, despite being expressly forbidden to, and having been threatened by my father that if I went to the dance with anyone other than a white boy, he would show up there himself and physically separate us. And I took an African-American history class taught by an incredible black male teacher, one of the very few in my high school, despite being a majority black school, and learned a side of history that my Catholic school and parents had suppressed. And being hugely into politics and journalism, I snuck and watched the Democratic National Convention in 1992 and found myself nodding in agreement much more often than I would have thought. Still, I worked on my very first presidential campaign for the re-election of George Herbert Walker Bush. For months, I distributed flyers and made phone calls, and on election night, I was at a party in Derry, Pennsylvania, fully prepared for Bush to win and remember watching the mostly white, mostly male, sad high school and college-age boys staring forlornly at the return scrolling by on the television screen until it was clear that Bill Clinton had won the presidency. I should have felt sad because I had worked so hard on the campaign, but in truth, I felt nothing. And when Clinton was inaugurated that January of 1993, which I lucked out into watching because my parents weren't home, and Fleetwood Mac's 1977 song, Don't Stop, written by Christine McVie and sung by her and guitarist Lindsey Buckingham, and which peaked at number three on the Billboard charts that year, came on, and confetti fell onto the stage, I was strangely moved, like something exciting was happening, something good. Watching Clinton's inauguration didn't make me a Democrat. I still lived at home and had far more of my parents' socially conservative messaging than anything else. 
And although getting pregnant and having a child at 18 and moving out of my house and working a full-time job and paying for an apartment and experiencing a ton of hard things at that age changed me, and I had denounced most of the views with which I was raised, I still clung to the erroneous idea that it wasn't the system that was corrupt, but individuals, and if we just worked really hard and made good decisions, that everything would work out. I became much more liberal on social issues like abortion and marriage equality, but registered to vote as a libertarian, failing to make the connection between how the inherently white supremacist and patriarchal strictures of American society made it so that one could work as hard as they could every day of their life and still find themselves unable to cover a $400 financial emergency or attire at the age of 65. And working full-time and raising three children left me without much time for political volunteerism. It wasn't until I started college at age 27 and took courses in sociology, political science, English literature, and history that I found myself questioning and rebuking my upbringing. But I did become more interested in political engagement once again. I made phone calls to help defeat Prop 4, which would have required minors to wait 48 hours after their parents were notified to have an abortion, knowing if the bill was passed, girls would have had unsafe abortions or been at risk from parental abuse. I joined the speech and debate team and advocated for social justice causes. I developed empathy and learned that it wasn't enough to care for other people's plights, but to understand how racism permeated through every aspect of American life, from housing to education, to the criminal justice system, to healthcare, everything. But it wasn't until 2007 when Barack Obama announced his candidacy for president that I was excited and moved enough to change my voter registration from libertarian to Democrat so that I could vote for him in the primary. He was the candidate who excited me enough to work on his campaign and the excitement I felt when Don't Stop played at Clinton's inauguration in 1993 paled in comparison to the joy I felt when Stevie Wonder's 1970s song, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours, which played at multiple Obama campaign events, was used to warm up the crowd at his election night rally at Grant Park in Chicago, where he gave his victory speech. Since 2008, I earned a BA degree, an MA degree, have taught at a university, several community colleges, and at a prison. While I find the Democratic Party far from perfect, and I know that the United States has always been a deeply racist and sexist country, I found a home in the Democratic Party. When Trump stole the election in 2016, I was one of many women who went to bed early, seeing the writing on the wall on election night. And I sobbed, not because Trump was Trump, although that was certainly part of it, but because I dreaded the suffering which was to come. The degradation of the environment, gutting of health care, the Supreme Court, erosion of rights for women, gay people, trans people, increased racism and hate crimes, school shootings, all of it. Although I can say I failed to predict the pandemic and attacks on the post office, what I learned about America was correct, that white people would rather vote for a man who brags about sexual assault, mocks the disabled, can't string together a coherent sentence, and is in every other way wholly unqualified and unfit to lead than to vote for a woman. This election was a traumatic reminder that no matter how far I had come on my personal journey of political awareness, and I know I still have a long way to go. I mean, heck, we white women would vote Obama a third term if we could, right? That the abusers, in their abusive ideology, 
was winning. There have been hopeful signs over the past few years. The election of the squad, AOC, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, and then them all winning their primaries again, has been amazing. The growing awareness surrounding racism and sexism has been a positive development, although we white people deserve no acknowledgement or applause for doing the bare minimum and recognizing things like the school-to-prison pipeline, voter suppression, and police brutality. We've also seen with the Wall of Moms how white women will perform activism for the validation our fathers didn't give us, and then sell out against black women and other women of color who have been doing the work for centuries. However, in campaigning for Elizabeth Warren in the primaries, I was told by voter after voter that they loved Warren, but they felt that only Joe Biden could defeat Trump. There was a ton of sexism this election cycle, just like there was against Hillary Clinton in 2016. Elizabeth Warren was left out of most mainstream media coverage altogether, despite being in the top tier of a crowded field of more than 20 candidates. I made it a point to listen to NPR's election coverage every morning, and they went an entire week without even mentioning Warren's name. She simply didn't exist. With Harris, rather than ignore, they criticized. She was called staged, calculated, and playing lowball for criticizing Biden during the debates. Harris had to end her campaign early, and when Warren ended hers after Super Tuesday and it was clear Biden would be the nominee, then the Veep Stakes attacks began. While I was still hoping for Warren on the ticket, I was ready to support whomever was chosen, knowing that defeating Donald Trump is paramount. So, when Kamala Harris was named the vice presidential nominee, I felt none of the disappointment I expected to feel over Warren not being chosen, and even more joy than I expected to over it being her. Of course, Trump couldn't make it an entire hour post-announcement without leveling his favorite sexist insult, calling Senator Harris a nasty woman, and then fanned the flames of birtherism 2.0. But after four years of the worst presidency in the history of the country, resulting in over 170,000 preventable deaths to coronavirus, the military beating and kidnapping those exercising their First Amendment rights, millions unemployed, and millions of others facing eviction, he's got nothing left but the racism that fueled his first presidential run. I agree with Ibram Kendi, who said, The Democrats now have a presidential ticket that reflects the American people better than the GOP ticket, and every presidential ticket in U.S. history. It's not everything. It's not the crushing of racism and sexism. It's not the freeing of black womanhood, but it can be the start. So, if we haven't already, with only 80-some days left until the second most important election in our lifetimes, the most important one was the last one, and we white women screwed that one up, so now we're here. Choose how you're going to start. Are you writing and calling senators and congresspeople, leveraging pressure against them to stop our descent into fascism? Are we asking to support the USPS? Are we supporting Black Lives Matter protests? If we have money, are we supporting Black-owned businesses? Are we writing postcards to voters? Are we talking to our friends and neighbors and encouraging them to vote and offering to take them to the polls? Are we amplifying the voices of social justice advocates on social media and, if we can, Venmoing them a few dollars or subscribing to their Patreon so we can continue the work? There are thousands of ways we can contribute to making a more fair and equitable country for all. And while we should all go outside of our comfort zones to do so, the fact is, 
we can stay very much in our comfort zones and give up 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. So if you haven't yet started, start there. No matter how we were raised, we have the choice and moral obligation to make good decisions as adults. Everybody, regardless of income level and ability level, can do something. If you have great health or enough money, awesome, do more. So, download your favorite campaign songs on Spotify and get to work. If you enjoyed today's show, like my Life is a Playlist page on Facebook and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Life is a Playlist. You can also email me at lifeisaplaylist at gmail.com and tell me what you're doing this election cycle or to offer advice for future shows. Until next time. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything.